hey, everyone, how are you? That's weak. You sounded horrible. You sound sick. How are you? Great. I'm great, and I'm excited to be here. And I got a question for you. When was the last time that you told someone that you work with, hang out with, a friend, a relative, an enemy, I don't care, that you go to this small church on this little loft somewhere, but the worship is unbelievable, and you really need to come with me. When was the last time you told someone that? If you didn't, if you haven't recently told someone that, you are keeping them from something that their heart desperately needs. Did you know that? Because I was here this morning, and, and your love never fails. It never gives up. It never gives up on me. And that just like hit me because I haven't seen Ken in a while and I haven't heard this type of worship. I was like, wow, you mean my boss gives up on me? Uh, Family members give up on me? My best friend gives up on me? But there's someone out there who would never give up on me? Jesus? And it hit me. I wonder if the people here have told or realized that there's a whole bunch of people out there that desperately should be sitting with you to hear that message. Don't come here every week and take it for granted. Don't sing a song as if you know the song. The words of the worship are powerful. They're life-changing. They're transforming. And the question is, are you keeping a secret for yourself that people desperately need, or are you sharing it with anybody that you can find? Hey, did you know there's a place where you can come on a weekly basis, and we'll sing songs that will encourage your heart, and they'll tell you the truth that you desperately need to hear. Would you come with me to church next Sunday? Who here will invite someone this week to come to their church where they can hear a message about Jesus? Come on, who's going to, who's committed? It's not that hard. It's not that hard. When was the last time you told someone about a sale at Walmart? You did. Why don't you tell them about something a lot better than Walmart? Anybody here been to Walmart recently? I try to stay away from that place. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, I'm glad to be here. Let me tell you a story about Ken, and I'm going to talk about this. And um, Ken is an icon in my life of the faithfulness of God, and I'll tell you why. I was a pastor of a church, and it's hard to pastor a church. Like Pastor Alex, I'm glad I can step in for him and give him a couple weeks break. It's the hardest job in the world. Today, I'm a, I've been a pastor, and I've always been bivocational, so I've worked and been a pastor. I'm a vice president of sales of a large company, $250 million, and you get a lot of pressures. I'm always with the CEO and all this stuff, and I meet with big companies. Being a pastor of this church right here is way harder, way harder, because you're trying to get people to catch a vision and get on board, and it's hard. And every week, this service keeps coming. And if you think you just stand up here and just run your mouth without any preparation, well, then you're speaking next week. Good luck. It's hard. And you got to do all the lights and the sound, and you got to put all the band together. And I was in the middle of doing that, just like this. And guess what? It was the end of a summer, and I can't remember all the details, but our worship leader was leaving. 
three of the band members were also going away, going back to college and for whatever reason. And at the end of the day, I knew that this Sunday would be the last Sunday that I had a good band like you just heard. And all of them are leaving. And you know that next Sunday is coming. I have seven days to put it all back together again. And I had no clue and no plan. And it isn't easy to put this together every single week. And my band member, the skeptic, good guy, came up to me in the week and said, So, Pastor Paul, what are you going to do next week? And I looked at him and said, I have no idea. None. No clue. That Sunday came. The music was off the charts. I mean, it was awesome, just like you have. Awesome. And I was like, this is great, but this is the end. It's over. It's done. Well, guess what? On that last Sunday of the band, being there, was the first Sunday, or actually I think he had visited before, but it was the first Sunday that I ever had a conversation with Ken Takata. That was the first Sunday that he came. After the service, Ken had walked down, and he's referenced it. He had been through a lot in life. His marriage was on the rocks. He had made mistakes. and His question was, could God ever use me again? That's what he was thinking. Uh, man, this is a great church. That music is awesome. I'm not worthy to be a part. Somehow, in God's providence, I met up with him, and we had a conversation, and I asked him what he'd done in his, the past, and he said he had led worship. And he had said he had led worship at a really big church. You're very privileged to have him leading worship here and a part of your church. He could lead at a very big church, McLean Bible Church, he had led worship at. And I was like, you led worship at McLean Bible Church? Meaning you're good? And I said, he said, yeah, you know, but I don't know, you know, I just, I want to just take it slow. I don't want to put myself forward. And guess what I said? You're leading next Sunday. And God had delivered to me at the very last moment someone who could help me keep doing the church. And Ken, to me, is an icon of God's faithfulness to me in my life. When I didn't have a plan, God was with me all the way. Um, the funniest thing is, I saw the skeptic guy in the band, and he was listening to Ken and I's conversation, and I saw him out of the corner of my eye, and he, he was literally standing there like this, and he went running out into the hall, and he found my wife. And he said, you will not believe it. Paul just found himself a worship leader for next week. And from there on out, Ken came and began leading worship. And I, and I say this just so you understand. He mentioned it earlier. I have never, there's, I don't know of any other family or individual who has volunteered more time for church work in the past five or seven years than they have. Because they did what they were doing here for me, and they've kept doing it for you, and God has blessed them tremendously. But you have a real treasure in your pastor who serves faithfully and your worship leader here. And when I see Ken, 
He has a special place in my heart. He's an icon that God doesn't let me down, that God will be there for me. Now, I say all that not just to say that about Ken, but I want you to remember that. An icon in my life of the faithfulness of God. Because what I want to do over the next two weeks is tell you two stories. And the question that we are going to answer is, what do we do in our life when our dreams die? You know, all of us have dreams. All of us have aspirations. All of us have goals. All of us have a vision for the future. And depending on how old you are, if you're in your teens or in your 20s, you still think they're all going to come true, possibly. If you're in your 30s or 40s, you know that some of them aren't coming true for sure. And if you're 50s or 60s, you know that a good bit of it, all the dreams and aspirations, uh, who know? I mean, life just doesn't always turn out the way you wanted it to turn out, right? What do we do when we realize that a dream or an aspiration isn't going to turn out? And even more, what do we do when we realize that the reason the dream, the goal, the vision for the future isn't going to turn out is because of a choice that we made, right? A lot of us have a vision for the type of marriage we're going to have or the type of family that we're going to have, but we make choices in our 20s that don't lead us to that place in our 40s, and we get to our 40s, and we look back, and we go, oh my goodness, I'm never going to have the family that I thought I would have because of the choice that I made, or I'm never going to have the marriage that I thought I would have, or I'm never going to have one marriage. I'm going to have more than one marriage because of choices that I've made. What do you do when you realize that your vision, your goal, your dream isn't going to happen? Or the career that you thought you would have and then you dropped out of school and then you wasted some years and you partied too much and now you're in your 30s and you're questioning, what is my life going to become like? And you realize a lot of it is, is your fault. Maybe you're on the other side of your first marriage. Maybe you realize you aren't going to have children. Or maybe you realize you're going to have children, but you're going to only have girls, and you have five girls, and you realize that you're never going to play football catch in the backyard for very long. Are you with me? Or you have three boys, and you realize shopping's not going to be a great experience, right? And, and the dreams that you had, or maybe you can't have children, and maybe not only are your dreams not going to happen, but your parents' dreams of being grandparents aren't going to happen. When you wake up to the reality that your dreams aren't going to happen, what do you do? What choice do you make? And sometimes, sometimes it's really heartbreaking because the reason why your dream isn't going to become true is not a decision that you made, but it's a decision that someone else made. Maybe your spouse made or a parent made or a, a worker or a boss made. And for some reason, your dream is not going to come true. And this is what's most difficult about the day and age that we live in. It appears that everybody else is living their dream. Do you know what that app is called? Instagram, right? Every Instagram picture, man, it seems like they have the greatest family ever. And it really seems like she loves her husband and he loves her. And that's just the great. And they're on their second vacation. I'm still trying to pay for last year's vacation. They're living the American dream. And look at my sucky life, right? 
and everybody else has experienced their dream, and we're struggling in ours. What do we do about that? How do we handle when our dreams just don't seem like they're going to become true? Or you dream, you dreamt of getting married, and you're 25, 26, 32, 33, and you're still not married. Is my dream going to become true? How am I going to respond when my dream isn't going to become true? And what do I do about it? Well, the good news is the Bible helps us understand. And I want to help you understand by telling you two stories. The title of this series is Dave. The two stories that I want to tell you are two stories about a man in the Bible. We'll call him Dave. He was King David, but that sounds so distant and, you know, so Old Testament-ish. We're just going to call him Dave, all right? You good with that? You heard of Dave in the Bible? Second king of Israel, pretty famous guy. A lot of stories in the Old Testament about him. Um, he's Jesus's great, 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 and a bunch of great grandfather. So Jesus is of the lineage of David. So this guy's a famous guy. He's a real guy who lived a long time ago, was the second king of the nation of Israel. And I'm going to tell you a story today. And the reason why I'm going to tell you the story today is so that you believe that I tell, you believe the story that I tell you next week. Because if I told you next week's story today, you wouldn't believe it. You'd say no one responds to when their dreams don't come true. No one responds to difficulty like that. That's a Bible story. That's a myth. That's too good to be true. So I'm telling you a story today that sets us up for next week. Because today's story, you and I can relate to. David is confronted with the reality that the dream that he was given basically by God is not going to come true, at least in the time frame that he thought. And in today's story, his response is so like our response. He panics. He takes everything into his own hands. He jettisons his character he lies a whole bunch of people pay the price for what he did what he does and basically he thinks to himself what you and I think when something isn't going to turn out right and we're not going to get what we want what we do is we take control and we think well if I don't fix this it won't happen if I don't grab a hold of the reins if I don't control if I don't do something about this, if I don't lie, it won't happen. If I don't change, you know, my character, if I don't, if I don't change what I believe in, well, then it just isn't going to happen. And we jettison our character and we jettison our values and we lie and we do whatever it takes to get what we want because gosh darn it, that is my dream. That is my vision and I will get it. David does that and it's exactly what I have done many times. And you have done. So I want to tell you this story. It's, uh, it's, it's a great story. Let me give you some of the background. It's found in 1 Samuel um, in the Bible. You could read it this week if you want. But let me give you the background. When David was a teenager, a prophet showed up at his house. The prophet was Samuel. Samuel lined up all the boys in David's family, and there was a bunch of them. This was completely random. And he points to David, and he says, David... You're going to be the next king of Israel, which would be like someone showing up at your house, lining up your children or lining you up, depending on where you're at in the, you know, in your family and saying, you're going to be the next president of the United States. You'd be like, really? 
It's kind of random. Completely random. David's a shepherd boy. He had no ties to political power. There was a king already. It was called, he was King Saul. The king had a son, Jonathan. How in the world would Dave ever be the next king of Israel? Completely random. Uh, Samuel um, leaves, and David goes back out to the field, and he thinks, man, I never had a dream. I never had a goal of being the next president of Israel, but I guess that's what I'm going to be. And God really birthed inside of him a vision for the future. Well, a few years later, completely random and unrelated to the story that I just told you, David ends up as an intern in the household of Saul in Jerusalem, which was the capital of Israel. This would be like being an intern in the White House. And I guess, I would guess, Dave looks at his life like we look at our life and goes, man, it was pretty random when uh, Samuel showed up, the prophet of God showed up and said I'd be the king. But hey, now just a couple years later, I'm an intern in the White House. And while I don't have a lot of uh, prestige or power right now, it's sort of starting to make sense. It appears that my dream is going to come true. A few years later, Dave hears that the nation of Israel is in a battle with the Philistines. He goes out to the battle not to join the battle. He was just a youngster still. He goes out to the battle to feed his brothers and bring them some food. When he gets there, this is a story you've probably heard. I don't know where you're at in knowing the Bible, but you've heard this part of the story. When he gets to the battle, there's this giant, the most famous giant that has ever lived. Do you know what his name was? A little louder. In your best giant voice. Goliath, right? Goliath is out there, this nine-foot-tall giant, and he's challenging the nation of Israel. <laughs> and little David, because he's naive and young, like when you're young, you think, what's this guy doing? He thinks in his mind, how dare you, Goliath, challenge my nation? Don't you know that we have a God that's more powerful than you and all the other nations? And don't you know that I can't lose to you? Because if God is with me, who can be against me? And this little pipsqueak charges down into the valley. And he doesn't take a sword. He doesn't take a shield. What does he take? A slingshot. Goliath is so taken back by it. That he lets the guy get dangerously close. He's, he's just like, are you serious? Is this the best they can? And before he gets the word do out. A little stone freaking hits him in the temple and kills him. And David becomes a national hero. They sang songs about him. And guess what? David, in his mind, is thinking, my dreams are coming true, right? It's all working out. Have you ever felt like it's all working out? Have you ever felt like this is the relationship that will lead me to marriage? He loves Jesus. He's a good man. He has a job. He takes a shower. This is going to work out great. I felt like everything's going to work out before. Dave's thinking everything's going to work out. It gets better. Because he kills Goliath, 
He becomes a national hero, and the king wants to see him. He comes into the king's presence, and the king says, You are handsome. You are strong. You are popular. Will you marry my daughter? That's what he said. That's kind of how it worked. And he says, Sure. I hope he, well, I won't go there. Um, I was going to say, did he see if she looked nice? But it's not about looks. It's not about looks. Um, Anyways, he marries the king's daughter. Now he is the son-in-law of the king. This This is really, really looking good. God, I bet. God, this is amazing. I love you so much, God. You are great. You are good. I didn't even ever think I wanted to be king. But I can just see how you are guiding and leading me and controlling my life. This is fantastic. On top of that, he became best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So he could perfectly see the scenario where Jonathan looks at him and says, Dave, you're a national hero already. You're just made to be the king. You are a leader. You are the type of guy who charges into the valley and takes on Goliath and produces great victories for our nation. I don't think it would be right if I were king. I want you to be the king, and I'll I'll be your second man or something. And David's thinking, this is all. I cannot believe that God is making this happen to me. This is so awesome. I can just see his hand all over my life. I've been there. You've been there. But then suddenly something happens. There's a mood change. And the king, Saul, who once was cheering David on, now felt like there was a threat to his throne and to his son's throne. And he became filled with jealousy towards David to the point that one day David is standing in the court and the king picks up a spear and chucks it at him to kill him. And it does one of those in the wall, you know, right by his head. And David goes, I don't think that was an accident. I don't think someone likes me. And suddenly King Saul became filled with jealousy. He goes to Jonathan, his son, and he says, you cannot be friends with that kid. He is a threat to your kingdom and my kingdom. And I expect you to follow my orders in this matter. Well, Jonathan was a good guy. He's best friends with David. He runs to David and says, hey, David, my father is willing to throw all of his resources as the king of this nation behind your death. You better get out of here. And in that moment, everything changed. And David had a choice to make. What would he do when things didn't look like they were going to work out? Well, I'll tell you what he did. It's the story I want to read for you. David heads for the border to leave the nation. He no longer feels like God is with him. Question for you, was God still with him? He just didn't feel it. He heads for the border. He doesn't feel like God is ordering his steps anymore. He has no explanation for what is happening. He's not even sure that God is in control. And even worse, this was God's vision for his life, not even his own. He knew that because the prophet came and told him he would be king. The prophet from God. Now what is God doing? Where is God? Has God lost control? Does God not love me? Does God not take care of me? 
and he panics and he reverts to things that you and I can relate to, humanly speaking. He turns his back on his God, he turns his back on his values, and he begins to take life into his own hands. And he heads out of the country, and in leaving the country, he comes to a little city called Nob. N-O-B, Nob. That's where the priests live. In this time period, the priests were taken care of by the government because the priests would serve the temple. The government would take care of the priests. The priests in this time period had wives, and therefore they had children. So the city of Nob had a number of priests living in it, and David shows up in this city running for his life, scared, doubting God, and questioning whether his dream would ever come true. Let me put the verse up on the screen for you. 1 Samuel 21, verse number 1. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? This would be like a, let's just say, Joe Biden showing up at your door in the middle of the night And you would say, are you here alone? Don't you usually travel with an entourage? I mean, where are all the black SUVs and the guys with the headsets? That's what Ahimelech is saying. This is a national hero, a captain in the army, Saul's right-hand guy, and he shows up at his house, and Ahimelech says, are you really here alone? David answered Ahimelech the priest, verse number 2. The king has charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instruction. Ahimelech, I'm here on a secret mission on behalf of the king. Now, what was that? Say it louder. Have you ever lied? Trying to control and get what you want? I can relate to this. Now he's telling tales. I'm on a secret mission. And what was Ahimelech's response? Oh, really? This is awesome. I'm going to help. What do I do next? Because I'm just glad the king would send you to my house. Right? That's what he's thinking. Verse 3. Now then, what do you have? Um, oh, let me, let me jump back to verse number 2. Let me... Um, Verse number two, the king charged me with a certain matter. No one's to know anything. As for my men, this is great. I have told them to meet me in a certain place. So his lie, just I like this. What he basically says is, yeah, I got some guys with black SUVs, but I told them to park around the corner over there. And I'm going to meet them over there, right? It's classic, you know. We we get into these things just like David does. Verse 3. Now then, he says to him, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. He's hungry. Which Ahimelech should have said, whoa, 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 wait a second. You're on a special mission from the king. You're a national hero. You always have an entourage. And you're at my house and I can't see the entourage. And no one gave you any food? Dave, what's up, dude? You, you, you're telling me lies. You know, parents would catch on to this with their kids. Ahimelech doesn't catch on. And David says, yeah, yeah, no, I'm on this special mission, but guess what? I'm just hungry, you know? And um, so uh, uh, Ahimelech uh, responds and says, um, Ahimelech responds and says, I, I got some food, um, 
but it's just not the type of food that you can eat. Verse number four. The priest answered, we don't have any regular bread. You say, what's regular bread? Well, I'll explain that. We don't have any ordinary bread. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. You say, what is that all about? Let me explain. He's a priest. And early on, when the nation of Israel was started, God had commanded the priests to keep 12 loaves of bread aside each week, representing the 12 tribes. And they couldn't eat the bread until the seventh day, till the Sabbath day. And they could only eat the bread if they were ceremonially clean. That's the special consecrated bread that he has. Dave is saying, I'm hungry. He says, I don't have regular people bread. I have priestly bread. And you can only eat priestly bread if you're sort of one of God's people. But Ahimelech starts to rationalize and goes, well, you're sort of the king's person. And the king is sort of here because of God. So maybe I could give you some bread as long as you're ceremonially clean, which means that you weren't with any women or your wife. And David responds and says, verse 5, Indeed, indeed, women have been kept from us. Now, I just think the word us is uh, hilarious. Verse number 5. I ne- um, women have been kept from us. As usual, whenever I set out, the men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more today? That's what the verse says. Now, think about this. He goes, David says, we're always ceremonially clean before we go out to pillage Philistines. Right, right. And as well, he says, uh, women have been kept from us. Who's us? Dave, last time I checked, you're alone. You're running. He still thinks there's guys in SUVs around the corner waiting for him. He's telling lies, and his lies keep, keep adding up. Verse number 6, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread, the bread of presence. Now, that bread of presence, something that God had given to the nation of Israel, to the priest, as a reminder of God's presence years ago, was, and I'm going to, I want you to hear, was an icon to David of God's past faithfulness David in the moment that the king said I'm going to give you some of the bread that reminds us that we have a God and if God is for us who can be against us it should have made David stop in the moment and go what am I doing that's that's an old reminder in my life that I can trust in God when my dreams aren't coming true And he misses it. He absolutely misses it. Verse number seven. Now, one of the Saul's servants was there that day. And the music goes, dun, 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 right? One of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. One of Saul's trusted guys. He's in Nog to see the priest. Maybe he had a physical issue, possibly leprosy, but for whatever reason, he was there, and he sees David conversing with Ahimelech. 
verse 8, David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword? It's hilarious. Hey, priest, I'm the captain of the army. Um, priest, do you got a spare RPG that I can borrow? You know, you got a spare sword gun? I, I need some ammunition. Ahimelech just said, whoa, wait a second. What are you doing here, right? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. Verse number nine, the priest replied. You're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. This priest has Goliath's sword in the back closet. Now you would think at this moment, David would wake up to the reality. Like David, oh yeah, I remember that. I killed a big guy, didn't I? What was his name? Goliath? You would think at this point he would be like, Oh my goodness, what am I doing here running like a scared little person when in the past period of my life, I stood up to Goliath, not in my own strength, but in the strength of the God who is with me. And I faced the giant and I became a national hero because I trusted in God, another huge icon of God's past faithfulness in his life. And guess what? He misses it. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped on a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword there but that one. And he grabs the sword, and he misses the meaning, right? And I got a question for you. When I started today, I told you a story from my life an icon in my life, which is Ken Takata, of God's faithfulness to me. And I have a question for you. I bet you have some icons in your life. Maybe it's a baby's room. Maybe it's a, a check or a receipt of how God blessed you when you most needed it. Maybe it's a job offer. Maybe it's in a diary somewhere. But at some point in your past, when you most wondered if God would come through for you, he has. And it's in front of you every day. It's an icon to God's faithfulness. But you and I, on a daily basis, experience these trials when we think our dream isn't going to become true and instead of recognize that in my past my God has come through for me I am not going to manipulate I am not going to lie I am not going to steal I'm not going to come up with some story I'm going to do the only thing that makes sense and that is I am going to trust my God in the situation. And why can I trust my God in this situation? Well, because I have some icons in the past. I have a picture. I have a story. There's a person in my life that reminds me of God's past faithfulness. All of us have those stories.
But in the midst of the chaos, David panics like we do. Look how the story finishes out here. Verse 9 and 10. David said, "There's, there's none like that sword. Give it to me. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. You got to read it for yourself. Achish, when he gets to Achish, um, he gets to Gath and he sees the king. The king's like, I don't want you in my territory. You're a war hero. You're a known great leader. You're a threat to me. And David realizes that the king's going to kill him too in, in Gath. And uh, David fakes insanity. You got to read it for yourself. He literally, is, he's brilliant. But he literally starts slobbering all over himself. And the Bible literally says he gets stuff in his hair. Like he's, you know. And the guy looks at him. The king looks at him like, this guy's lost his mind. Get out of here. And David walks out with a smile on his face saying, that worked. Right? And he keeps on running. And he keeps on running. And from one exploit to another, and I'll tell you how the story ends. It's really bad. A whole bunch of people get hurt. But the question is this. What do you do? How do you act just like David when you realize your dreams aren't coming true? Do you turn to alcohol? Do you turn to a pill? Do you turn to a friend who you know is not the right friend? But if God and his friends and his people aren't going to assist you, then I'm going to take it into my own hands. Is that what you do? What do you do? What do you do when you aren't sure it's going to work out? Do you seek revenge? Well, if that person is going to end the marriage, then I am going to do everything in my power to spend the rest of my life getting retaliation on that person. Is that, is that what you do? Do you seek to take control? And do you live by the philosophy that if I don't, it won't. If I don't get revenge, it won't happen. What do you and I do? And the second question is, how's it working for you? It doesn't work out well. Let me tell you how it worked out for David. It's really, really sad. Doag... You know, the guy who saw him did what people do. He went running back to the king. And he said, hey, king, you won't believe this. That traitor Ahimelech was helping David run from you. The king gets angry. He charges to Ahimelech's house. He knocks on the door and says, Ahimelech, was David here? And Ahimelech goes, absolutely. And I helped him. King says, you helped him? Oh, yeah, he said he was on a secret mission. <laughs> secret mission. And King Saul turns to his armies, leaders, and he says, kill him. And the kings and, and the army guys say, I'm not killing the priest. No way, king. Doeg, the guy who saw him, raises his hand and says, I'm not even from this place. I'm an Edomite. I'll do it. And he kills Ahimelech. What did Ahimelech do? Nothing. He killed Ahimelech. He killed his sons. Killed his, his daughters. Killed his wife. And he killed 79 other priests that lived in the town of Nog. And they devastated that city. 
And the reason why I tell you this story is because when I tell you next week's story, you're going to realize that David must have experienced something in his life that taught him an incredible lesson. And that lesson is, it's never wise to take things into your own hands when you don't know what God is doing. Because the reality is, God is not out of control. You just don't know what he's up to in your life today. And if you will put your hands in your pockets and zip your lip and get on your knees and cry out to that God and say, God, I don't understand it. I don't like it. You're puzzling me. But I am not going to lose my faith in you. And instead of running from God, we lean into the God who has proven throughout history that he's in control of our lives. And it may not be when we want him to do it. And it may not always be how we want him to do it. And it may not always look like we think it should look. But there's a God who knows more than we know. And he can be trusted. And the sooner that we learn that lesson, the better. Next week, we'll dig into kind of what do we do and how do we handle it? Because David learned some lessons. But let's just, let me just close with this. I want to pray for you. I just want to ask a question. We always think that everybody else's dreams are coming true and just not ours. So let's just settle that myth. If you're here and you can say, I got some unanswered dreams. I got some real questions for God. And I really need help trusting him. Would you just lift your hand? If you have some dreams, some aspirations, some things that just haven't haven't worked out the way you would like, just hold your hand up. Don't put your hand down. Hold your hand up. See, it's all of us. My hand is up. If I wasn't holding this microphone, I'd have two hands up. I got a lot of dreams. I got a lot of visions of things I would like to see. I'd like I could imagine my life being a certain way and it's it's not always that way. Let me say a prayer for you and we'll be done this morning.